And there were women in my book, of course, who were betrayed. And there is really no defence against that. Edith Cavell, she was betrayed, but then her betrayer actually had endured intense interrogation by the Germans. I mean, pretty horrific. And so I guess one can understand that that might be difficult to resist. So he does give up her name. And of course, she shot at dawn as a result of that. Welcome to this week's pod, and we're going to chat female spies from Matahari to Edith Cavell, and from the Cambridge spies to the Special Operations Executive. Helen Fry joins me to talk about how women were key in espionage during World War I, the interwar period, and World War II. Coming up on the pod, I've got Charles I, James Holland on World War II Italy, Vietnam and the Mille Massacre, and much, much more. So please, please, please share, like and subscribe. And in the meantime, I'll hand you over to me talking with Helen Fry on Female Spies. Helen Fry, welcome back, actually, to the podcast. It's great to have you on again because we're here to talk about your new book, Women in Intelligence. Uh, but welcome, Helen. Great to be back. Thank you for having me again. Well, this book is uh, really quite an achievement because, I mean, it's called Women in Intelligence. That really does cover it. It is women, the history of women in intelligence, primarily First and Second World Wars. And I've been reading this book and it's just um, some of the tales in here I didn't know anything about. And so that's why it's so important that it's in this book that people can learn about it. But, you know, this is I know and I want to get on to this. I know in the beginning of the book, you talk about one spy in particular who maybe is overshadowed female intelligence agents. And I'd be keen to talk about her. And that's Matahari. Mm. But I found that many of the tales, even in the First World War, are tales of sort of daring do and, and you know, um, on the level of the most famous fictional spy, James Bond. And that was quite a surprise to me, actually. And and is that my male misogynistic mind being surprised? No, absolutely not. I've obviously been doing the tours of literary and history festivals and giving talks to local groups and bookshops. And, you know, there's this, awe of silence and it was a bit disconcerting to start with and then I now realise and people are absolutely hooked. I, I think the stories are quite basic because of course I'm used to them now but a lot of these stories are new and people are just sat there glued waiting for the next bit of the talk and I only really appreciated that this week when I had comments back from an event and I realised actually this is this is new. A lot of this stuff is new. Mm, yeah, I, I was surprised actually. But I've mentioned Matahari, so I and I know you, she gets a brief mention in the book, and almost uh, you're um, giving a slight lesson for the reader that you know Matahari is not representative of female agents in the field. And I just wanted to explore that a little bit, um, just to start with, because Matahari, who is a Dutch 
agent who was caught by the British and the French and, and ultimately she was executed. But there's actually a question mark over whether she really was the sort of femme fatale that she was described by um, by newspapers and things at the time. And so is she is she perhaps unfairly given this femme fatale um, uh, name, Monica? It's really interesting that if you look at her declassified file, and it's a file that was raised by MI5, by the British Security Service, there are questions over whether she was even a spy. And I find that fascinating because I just assumed, like everyone, that whole image of her. But when you dig into the detail... She was an exotic dancer. She was very beautiful. But it's not actually clear what she's done. She may have carried out a little bit of letter writing, but she wouldn't really be the spy that we kind of think of when we, we think of the, the spy craft and what they were doing. So it's really not very clear. And the British petitioned the French not to execute her but to try and, if she really is a spy, you know, let's turn her to work for us. Let's get the information. But the French went ahead and executed her. So they lost a source of intelligence if she really was a spy. And then, of course, after her death and in the 1920s and beyond, she is a figure just escalates in terms of fame and this beautiful spy, and she is the quintessential femme fatale. But she's overshadowed what women really achieved and what women really were in their intelligence work. Yeah, so let's talk about that. I mean, in the First World War, I approached the book thinking, okay, this was a time where you had this sort of, um, you know, obviously very patriarchal society. Women didn't even have a vote. Uh, that didn't come till later. And so, and you quote the uh, a, an intelligence chief early on in the book. It's just... <laughs> it's awful, isn't it? <laughs> what does he say? He says women are, you know, they 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 get um, they can you can get angry easily or something like that. Well, I I can't quite remember the exact quote. I'll 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 dig it up for the listeners somewhere. Listeners, here it is. This is from Major General David Henderson, the Director of Military Intelligence, and he declared Women are frequently very successful at eliciting information. They require no disguise. If attractive, they are likely to be welcome everywhere and may be able to seduce from their loyalty men whose assistance or indiscretion may be of use. On the other hand, they are variable, easily offended, seldom sufficiently reticent and apt to be reckless. He, he does make these sort of um, strange remarks, but... Then you lay out all these different agents in the, in the First World War who are performing just extraordinary feats, really, because I had assumed that there would be a lot of secretarial work amongst the intelligence services, and then that would be it. And that, how wrong am I? Well, I, I struggled to find any secretaries, if I'm being honest. It was quite the reverse. Well, of course they were. Of course there were secretaries in administrative roles within MI5, for example, on the home front. But whilst there were not very many uniformed women, uh, obviously in the, the yeah. wax, so there are, there are very few 
uniformed women serving in the First World War, you have what's called the Hushwags, and they're the Women's Auxiliary Army Corps. And they're involved in a bit of co-breaking, that kind of thing in France, but there are only a dozen of them. But where we really see women make a difference is in civilian roles out of uniform and traditionally involved in spy craft and running spy networks behind enemy lines and for me their stories are just inspirational they have uh, an oath of defiance almost that underpins everything they do they are going to fight for their freedom and they work in networks for british intelligence and are they doing that because they've set it up themselves? They're not waiting for some senior officer in London to tell them to do it. In some cases, this is off their own bat. Well, we have a sort of parallel going on where the British are aware that we need intelligence outreach. And they are looking from amongst Belgian refugees in particular that are coming into the UK via Folkestone. That was the main entry point. And there were around 180,000 Belgian refugees by 1915, an extraordinary number of them. So we were on the lookout. We knew we needed intelligence. But on the other hand, just at the outbreak of war in August 1914, Belgians themselves started to put together an intelligence network. And they then didn't initially have the means to reach British intelligence. But they were quite happy to work with French intelligence or British intelligence. In the end, they worked with the British. It was much harder to have links with the French as it so happened. So that's kind of running along side by side. And once British intelligence firmly takes them up, I mean, it really runs. But of course, it's not without its betrayals and, you know, horrific executions of some of those brave men and women. Well, there was one woman who I think I'll probably say her name wrong, Martha, Martha McKenna. Yes. Um, I think her, her maiden name, I'm I'm not going to try it, really would have messed that up. But she's she's extraordinary because she sets up this, uh, this network, is exposed, sentenced to death. But then that's not the end of the story, is it? It's amazing that she not only survives, but is... is it seems like a slightly more innocent time. I don't think she would have survived had she been doing what she was doing in the Second World War, where you, obviously the Nazis were a different kettle of fish to the German authorities in the First World War. Oh, that's interesting you think that from the book, because I suppose the levels of brutality are... They are different in Second World War, you're quite right. But in the First World War, they could still face pretty horrific time in prison. And the conditions were pretty grim, solitary confinement, very little food. Some of the women that barely survived, really, the conditions, some of them died in prison if they weren't shot already. But Martha McKenna is, you're quite right, is extraordinary because she's nursing German soldiers as well as British soldiers at, at times, but primarily the German soldiers. And she gains a lot of respect. She's Belgian, as you say. She gains a lot of respect from the German officers and those in authority. And some of them don't believe that she's actually a spy. So that when she gets accused of spying, they sort of defend her. But she also runs backwards and forwards with medicines and things like that. And she's sent on a mission to collect something from an aerodrome. And while she's there, she's spying on the new kind of German planes. 
And I won't spoil the plot for our listeners, but effectively, as you know, there is, is a section of she is the spy who saved London because she actually provides intelligence that saves London from a pretty major bombing raid by the Germans. When you have agents, particularly back in the First World War, and you as a historian, and this is a more general point, not, you know, not specific to any particular agent, but I was interested, in, I'm always interested in the sort of human element of a spy, the fact that you're dealing with fallible personalities. And is it, as a historian, writing your history, do you think that if you're writing about a particular person, they could be the story that you're reading, the official documents that you're reading are what obviously is, you know, that's that's what's in the records. That's the official story. But there might be something behind whether they're a double agent or a triple agent. You just it's difficult to glean from the uh, from the records. Do, do you see what I mean? Do, do you see what I'm getting at? Where, whereas it's sometimes difficult to know if if a a human asset is is who they say they are. How do you know they're really working for us kind of thing? Yeah. Particularly with the double agents, the female double agents of the Second World War. Well... Because as you say, everyone's trying to flip everyone else, aren't they? It's a very interesting one. You get a sense in the declassified MI5 files, the agents they are the agents that they are working with, they do spy on some of them. They do, if if they suspect some of them of being, you know, possibly could be liable to being turned. So they've got character assessments. But there's one in particular, Fifi, whose dog is, well, unwittingly killed by the British. It causes a huge storm. And she says, as a revenge, she's going to, she actually says, as revenge, I'm going to spill all the beans and tell the Germans exactly what I've done. And British intelligence, I mean, she, you know, is not really sure if she's actually going to do that. And she doesn't in the end. But she goes to an address, she's in an address in northwest London. And one of the other female double agents whose work has pretty much gone quiet is actually billeted with her to keep an eye on her and just to monitor her and it's my understanding that with Garbo who famously with a deception head of D-Day it's my understanding that his house based in Hendon northwest London there were people listening next door to check or keeping an eye on him. Yeah so for the benefit of our listeners who may may not be aware Garbo was this um, well you know better than I don't you Helen? Well, Garbo was the one, he he wasn't actually recruited by us. He was the one that offered himself. He was so determined to be a spy that he started to run his own spy network. And in the end, it was a fictitious spy network. And, of course, he so forced himself into a situation that British intelligence thought he was going to blow all their operations. So they took him on. But for me, the magical thing in that case, was the fact that he set up this whole network of agents, none of whom were actually real, but they had names and they were doing jobs. And and the Germans really believed these agents existed. And they even paid him the salary for these agents. Um, And it was just one of the cleverest deceptions. But there were also women involved in the double cross as well, double cross as we call it. And For me, that was an exciting part of the book as well. Relatively unknown. There are a few characters that are known, but they they did their bit. They played their part, importantly, in the deceptions ahead of D-Day. 
I mean, that's the stuff I love because it's so straight out of Graham Greene and our man in Havana and, you know, Graham Greene who worked in, in the intelligence services. So, you know, it, it's, it's that uh, element of no one really trusts, you know, who do you trust? Who do you trust? Well, that was certainly true for the intelligence networks behind enemy lines because they were susceptible to betrayal. Well, as we know in France in the Second World War, and you have traitors like Harold Cole who compromised the MI9 escape lines. MI9 were involved in bringing airmen and soldiers back to the UK, primarily to fight another day. And there were others. There was another one in, in Holland and and that for me was is always the hardest part. And there were women in my book, of course, who were betrayed. And there is really no defense against that. Edith Cavell. I was gonna mention nurse, her, yes. She was betrayed, but then her betrayer actually had endured intense interrogation by the Germans. I mean, pretty horrific and so I guess one can understand that that might be difficult to resist so he does give up her name and of course she shot at dawn as a result of that yeah so Edith Cavell is first world war and she's probably the sort of second most famous spy isn't she in 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 um the first world war would you say I mean and that's including men and women she is one of the most Yes. Yes, she is one of the most well-known spies. But what I discovered in my reading was that there is this toing and froing in opinion as to whether she really was a spy or not. So I knew when I wrote this book I would have to answer that question definitively if I could. You know, let's let's try and answer this once and for all. Was Edith Cavell a spy or was she nursing French and British soldiers and helping them to escape? Was she doing any intelligence work? And what I discovered, I hope it's not a spoiler for your listeners, but she really was a spy. And in fact, she was a spy mistress, which meant that she actually founded an intelligence network. And I'm on a mission, I think, long term to see if we can uncover the intelligence that she discovered, because so far there's no paper trail. But we know from the eyewitness accounts of the agents, men and women who worked for her, they were most definitely involved in traditional spy craft and they were intelligence gathering. And in the First World War, which is, I mean, the security, the intelligence services had only been created a few years before the First World War, I think 1909. Mm. And so was there a formal structure like we know today, MI5 and MI6, and and there were clear um, barriers between the two? Or was it a little bit more of an almost amateurish approach? There are clear distinctions between the two of them and their modus operandi so we we know that but they're still very small in terms of numbers and budget but also there's no proper training even the regular intelligence officers didn't have training they had to learn on the job if you like so those early figures are fascinating the likes of Mansfield coming who heads what later becomes MI6 or the secret intelligence service you know, it's using his his ability, his insights. He, he's kind of having to start this from scratch. And it's like that with the agents behind enemy lines. 
They are kind of learning on the job. They know the kind of intelligence that's important, but they develop the spy craft. They develop ways of transmitting the information, whether it's coding messages into jumpers and scarves. I love that, the ladies knitting in front of their cottages, or whether it's coded messages in newspapers, which just look like ordinary reports to the average reader. They are developing spycraft, which we would recognise today as being the spycraft we love from that period. Yes, I remember listening to an interview with Nigel West, who I know you've used, he appears in your bibliography. And I love his stuff. He's, yeah, he's doing some fabulous stuff. Yeah, he's really, really good. Uh, his interview, he described, um, I think it was uh, the Ashenden stories of so realistic and they're set in the First World War. And, you know, it's 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 things that appear amateurish, but they're not, I suppose, like the knitting of the jumpers. If you were to walk past and see a woman knitting, you would assume, oh, OK, she's just knitting a jumper. But yes. obviously that's not the case. And you've got the women moving across enemy occupied territory. They are expected to be at home. They're expected to be wandering around, you know, between villages, perhaps visiting relatives, perhaps doing their shopping. If they're cycling, you know, they, they seem quite innocent. They were really invisible to the Germans. The Germans didn't really expect them to be spying or even to have any particular sophisticated network. So the networks look fairly simple on one level. But by the end of the First World War, they're pretty expansive and they cover the whole of Belgium. And there's a similar network in Luxembourg. And you've got spies moving in and out of northern France, you know, to see what's going on there. So quite incredible, really. So then if we move more into the interwar period and and towards the Second World War, I was reading also about how there is a, an attempt to sort of get in uh, to understand the fascists, using spies to get into the fascists that involved family connections with the head of MI6 at the time. And this is also a part of the Kendrick network, which you wrote about last year. And this is really interesting because, you know, I guess war war is coming despite, you know, the appeasement policies of the government. But war, it, war, war is is coming, as we know now. And uh, so spying didn't just stop and start when, when war uh, ended in 1918, did it? No. So you've got an increase in the role of women of MI5. And, you know, our listeners can read about that fascinating period and what's going on within MI5. But you've also got the Secret Intelligence Service, later MI6, actually working out of British passport offices across Europe. They are monitoring the Soviet threat and in the 1930s, the threat from Nazi Germany. But you've also got that very same threat within the UK. And we don't often think about that, but we do have in the 1920s, you have communist spies, you have Russian spies, some might be for political, some might actually be to overthrow democracy, but we need to monitor them. And there were demonstrations, there was a famous one in 1930 in Trafalgar Square, famous communist Edith Shoshitsky, who of course goes on to cross paths with Kim Philby. She's in a demonstration in Trafalgar Square and MI5 are tracking her. So MI5 are already tracking the communist threat to Britain because democracy 
is potentially at risk. And then in the 1930s, you've still got the communist threat, but you've also got the rise of the fascists. You've got Oswald Mosley's British Union of Fascists. You've also got other groups, Anglo-German fellowships, which really have an undercurrent not only of appeasement, but they are, some of them look to be pro-Hitler. There is a mix, of course, and they're having dinners and lectures and guest speakers you've got to infiltrate these networks to check what risk they are and women were absolutely vital in that and mi5 use a number of key women i love these stories actually and one of them friedel gartner was actually married to the brother of the head of mi6 she goes on to become a double agent as well. She's got lots of interesting roles. I find her fascinating. Yeah, yeah, that is amazing. I mean, but I guess the 1930s was when, you know, these moles were recruited by the Soviets. We know most famously of the Cambridge spy ring, but were there British female individuals recruited by the Soviets as well? Not that I've discovered, no, it's not a stupid question, actually. It may just be that, that there were and we don't have the declassified files, or it may just be that I haven't worked on them because there are so many files for double agents. And I suppose if you look at MI5 that's tracking the, the threat to Britain in the 1930s, and particularly in the Second World War as well, in those files of individuals, some of them aren't very famous, we won't have heard of, in those files, they often go back and you can see that they've actually been spying for either the communists or Germany since the 1920s, and in the case of Germany, since the 1930s. So we'd have to do a study on individual cases to be absolutely sure. But there aren't any famous ones that I know straight away. Edith Shoshitsky is interesting because she's Viennese, a communist, and she marries a Cambridge professor. And she is actually working for Soviet intelligence, or she is a spy for the Soviets. So she actually marries an academic from Cambridge. Uh, she becomes Edith Tudor Hart. So she married Alexander Ethan Tudor Hart. And he's sort of got communist links. They, their marriage doesn't last, actually. And did she introduce Philby to his Soviet handler? Yes, she's the one that suggests to Philby's new wife that it would be a good idea for Philby to meet Otto Deutsch, as he was, his new handler. Yeah, and that's when that's in around June, July 1934. Kim Philby and Litzy Friedman. Litzy Friedman, his wife. Yes. Kim Philby and Litzy Friedman marry in Vienna in 1934 and they come back to the UK she's his British wife now and they come back to the UK in April 1934 and so it's a month or two after that that Kim Philby is taken on as a penetration agent by Otto Deutsch of course he doesn't know Deutsch's real name it's Arnold he's just Otto but he's actually Arnold Deutsch and when I started out on my research his file hadn't been declassified, but it has now. It's not all there. I think there, there are clearly gaps. It's quite a, a thin file. But it is fascinating. It does begin to give us a glimpse into this area. Well, also, it shows how... I mean, I don't know if there is this 
idea that's ever been around, but that the spy game in the 20th century was a kind of male dominated game. And that, you know, as you, as you've illustrated in your book, that's not the case at all. You know, it's not. Yeah. No. And one of the main themes, which I found myself personally, and, and people may or may not agree with this, that, it, that the legacy of these women has been hidden by official secrecy. I mean, it's true that some male historians haven't obviously focused on the stories of the women. Maybe they haven't looked for them. I don't know that it's necessarily a conscious thing. I don't think we can say that women's legacy has been hidden by misogyny. I, don't, I wouldn't want to go that far, actually. That's just me personally. But from what I've read... You know, even I couldn't have written these stories 20 years ago because the files weren't there. So I, for me, it's not misogyny. Today, maybe one could say, look, if, if male historians keep overlooking certain files, maybe, you know, what's going on? But, but that's just not true anymore, I don't think. There may be a residue here and there, but on the whole, it's not true. And so it's official secrecy that's obscured their real contribution and so, therefore, does that mean that you know the the files themselves, the the secrets themselves, the documents? I guess am I looking for something that doesn't exist? As in, is there men who are keeping the documents or writing the documents are obscuring female spies, or is no, no? And interestingly, some of the official histories that are written up, particularly at the end of the Second World War, some of the histories of SOE of the Special Operations Executive, particular sections are written by women and some of the sections of the naval intelligence history for example were written by women who'd become experts in those sections and it's only when the files are declassified you read the reports or the official histories and they could be 30 40 pages maybe longer and then you see who signed them so unless one goes into that level of detail one wouldn't know who's written the reports and so it's also true of the men that a lot is obscured by official secrecy and I think if we were to write something from the cold war upwards until contemporary times I think it would be even harder to recover the stories of men and women because mm. you know the material's just not all declassified or even a large proportion of it for us to be able to, to do the equivalent book of my women in intelligence for for a later period i just don't think it's possible at the moment but i'd love to be proved wrong is that a curiously british thing in that the americans seem to be a little bit more willing to to release their files we don't seem to be very good at that in this country well, there's a very good reason for that, and it goes back to the end of the First World War, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this story, but in 1918, there was a huge move to have the Belgian agents recognised. I mean, they were so totally courageous, men and women. We've got to give them awards. You know, there's this huge move to get them recognised, and there was a bit of resistance, quite a lot of resistance from British intelligence. But finally... They relented. And in 1919, in the London Gazette, there is published every single name of every single agent that had a re an award by the British. Well, you can imagine 21, 22 years later, the Germans are back and they've got that list. And they, they start knocking on doors of houses 
because they don't want those families to be doing the same work in the Second World War against them. And in one case, they turn up at the home of Madame Ruissard in Luxembourg, and she'd, you know, headed and established this intelligence network in the First World War, but she'd passed away a few months beforehand. But I'm pretty sure they would have would have taken her away and executed her. So that is my understanding is as a result of that, British intelligence has got this blanket thing. We are not going to release the names of our agents, our helpers to protect the families. There could be reprisals. Some areas of the world they have a very, very long memory, might have reprisals quite unnecessarily against members of the family. So that's, I think, the difference between that and of course in america yes they do declassify files sometimes after 50 years well we haven't really mentioned the second world war and we've got to mention soe i mean this is this this is makes up a large part of the book and it's again more tales of daring do they're probably a little bit more familiar to us because we've had tv shows uh, about about them and there have been great books written by by yourself and other female historians uh, and we're seeing blue plaques going up in London as mm. well. So, you know, SOE, though, was stunningly successful, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was successful in terms of sabotage missions. There is always that terrible cloud of the betrayals and the deaths of the agents. And what I'm fascinated by, we know a lot about France, about F-section, and at the moment, we know that around 470 agents, men and women, were sent into France, dispatched a good number of them by Vera Atkins, who's, again, becoming more well-known. But I wouldn't be surprised if there weren't a lot more that were sent in that we just don't know about, because people always concentrate on the heavy number of betrayals and deaths, and, and that's true. But something just doesn't sit right. For me, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a lot more because the agents were still being sent in and they were being captured. But how many didn't get captured that we, we don't know about? But I also have two chapters on SOE female agents into Belgium, into Holland, very brave. Some of those were actually intelligence missions. And that's something we don't traditionally think of with SOE. SOE is blowing stuff up behind enemy lines. We're not into intelligence. But I discovered quite contrary to that. And then I do have a hefty section, quite rightly, on the Austrian-German section, Section X, as it was known. And this was effectively completely run by women. I mean, the figurehead was male, Lieutenant Colonel Thornley, but these three extraordinary women that had worked for Thomas Kendrick in Vienna in the 1930s go on to recruit, train and dispatch the agents into Austria, SOE agents into Austria. They're almost completely hidden in accounts of SOE so far. And, and even their own families don't know until they have a look at their personal effects and discover a pen that can kill you. Yeah, that's why it's not an ordinary pen, is it? It's an assassin's pen. And that family, they kind of said to me, well, is it, it was her, their great aunt. And they found it in her jewellery box. Had she ever used it, they said to me. And I said, well, I don't know, because her file is so slim. There's about three pages in her file that tell us anything. And I said to them, kind of half seriously, actually, does it have any blood on it? <laughs> 
So maybe they'll send it for forensic testing just to be sure if it's ever been used. I mean, it, it raised for them far more questions about their aunt, who was supposedly just a secretary. Well, I, I love those secretaries because wherever they are, SOE, MI6, MI5, they're emerging as experts and they're doing roles which are actually quite awe-inspiring. They are inspirational. They are not just typing reports. Because I was thinking about this when I was reading that my, my grandmother was fluent in German and French and she joined the um um the the fannies. Yes. And but then there is a bit of a mystery as to what she did for the fannies in that you know there, there's no uh, there's no photographs or anything like that and and so that yes there's always there's been questions asked around the lunch table maybe granny with her language skills she spent time in germany in the 1930s and there are photographs of her with these you know um wehrmacht uh, officers and it's fabulous yes it really is it's all very mysterious so reading reading your book just Peak the interest massively. Well, she might have an SOE file now. A lot of fannies had joined the SOE, not only the SOE, but they could join, some of them were joined as fannies, some are civilians, some ATS, some WAF. So it could be, it would be worth checking that there isn't a file for her or even asking if there's one that can be declassified. So it is utterly fascinating the fact that she's in there in Germany in the 1930s again that seems to be a pattern for some women who were well quote unquote on holiday in some very important places like Nuremberg when there's a when there's a major rally and getting close to the army officers perhaps just picking up tidbits of information perhaps picking up whether major Colonel, General so-and-so's anti-Nazi, because there was an anti-Nazi movement that becomes quite strong in the Second World War, not that they can do anything about it at that, at that stage. So it was really important to gauge the political temperature, if you like, and to try and work out which figures in Germany potentially might be amenable to helping us if we went to war. And so a lot of that's going on around Germany, Austria and other parts of Europe. And occasionally the odd couple get picked up with a camera and they're just on holiday, but the Germans think they're spying. And <laughs> you think, yeah, I think they probably were. <laughs> we have one case of an Australian couple that came all the way from Australia just to visit Salzburg. They weren't going to the concerts either. They were taking some interesting photographs. So, yeah, maybe your your granny was doing something really special, but she never told anybody, of course. No, well, I, I'm going to have to get some email addresses off you and do a little bit of digging. Uh, Helen, Helen, this has been really wonderful. Now, before you go, I did want to mention the stunning cover. that Your book covers are so good. This is, I think, the third by this designer. And yes. I, they're really striking. So I'm going to put a little link onto the and, and put something on my Instagram for the listeners if they're interested. But these covers are they're really they they really are wonderful, aren't they? Yeah, they're incredibly special. They're hand designed and they reflect really 
for me, the excitement and the depth of the stories, particularly that one, oh, I say it every time, with each of the titles, I'm wowed by the covers. And then I think it's not possible to beat that design. And then the next book comes out and it's like, oh my goodness, this is double wow. But for that, for me, that one with the women, they're, they're, they're not even stationary, they're in step, they're moving, they're, they're coming out of the page and they're women of action. And that's what I love, whether they're civilian or in uniform or cycling behind enemy lines, all reflected in that cover. I think it's just wonderful. Great stuff, Helen. Well, thanks so much and uh, best of luck with the book. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. There's so much more history to come, including next week's Film Club on JFK, directed by Oliver Stone, which is on the anniversary of the assassination of John Kennedy, and then Charles I, Vietnam, World War II Italy, and much, much more. Please share, like, and subscribe. But until then, thank you and good night. (laughs) 